Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the social index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Jason Kent. Jason's the CEO of Digital Contact Next, the only trade association exclusively serving digital content companies that manage direct relationships with consumers and marketers. He's focused on guiding those member organizations from established media brands such as the New York Times, NBC, Condé Nast, ESPN, and digital natives like Vox, Slate, and Business Insider on setting agendas and discussions ranging from net neutrality to revenue innovation and privacy. Jason's a 20-year veteran of the digital media industry. He led the evolution of CBS Sports into a multi-platform brand offering of broadcast online and mobile sports as the Senior Vice President and General Manager of CBS Interactive Sports Division. He served on other various executive roles at the Times Mirror and Condé Nast before that. On the show today, we talk about the duopoly of Google and Facebook, trust in those platforms, what it means for publishers and marketers and advertisers, their new platform called TrustX, which is a getting into the programmatic space for premium publishers, and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jason. Well, Jason, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Well, I thought it would be good because I wasn't familiar with Digital Contact Next. Maybe you could give us an overview. What is Digital Contact Next? 
Uh, you know, DCN, we're a trade association, a, non- a nonprofit that works on behalf of the content companies, primarily the, the digital content companies. And we are focused on helping their strategy and where the industry is going. And so uh, it's mainly news and entertainment companies. And we help them with everything that typical trade association would do in terms of, of research and advocacy and policy and events and uh, helping to guide them. Okay, good. And what was your path to become CEO of uh, DCN? You know, I, I was involved with the organization on its board. I had spent about 20 years in digital, primarily with a couple a couple big properties. Uh, but I sat on the board of, of DCN on behalf of uh, CBS, uh, the television company, uh, for a good, good seven or eight years. So I had been involved with the organization, and uh, they asked me to, to take it on in 2014. And so I, I did. I was thrilled at the opportunity and and have been trying to help shape their their uh, their agenda. Okay, gotcha. And it seems that most of your members are quote unquote. I think you maybe even classify them as premium publishers. Can you describe maybe what that means? Yeah, yeah, they are. Right? You know, we we have uniquely we have companies that come from television, magazine, newspaper backgrounds. We have a, a bunch of native digital companies, but the thing they all have in common is that. You know, they are brands that have a high level of trust with both consumers and advertisers. That's what makes them unique. You know, they're not, they're not ad tech companies. They're not intermediaries or kind of people that sit in between. They're actually the, the brands that the consumers seek out and, and trust for their, their news and entertainment. We use that, that word trust quite a bit to describe, describe these brands and the relationships that they have with, with their end customers. And so, you know, that includes, Brands like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, Disney, CBS, Condé Nast, but then like Vox Media and Business Insider and these native digital companies too. And so it's quite a mix. It's about 80, 80 or so companies in total. And I think most, you know, most of the news entertainment industry of the future. Got it. Well, I know you're taking on a bunch of issues. Uh, there's so much going on in this space. One of the topics that seems to keep bubbling up is this duopoly of Google and Facebook. And, you know, it seems to be that you would likely have the pulse on your membership base and premium publishers. What does is, what is that duopoly mean for premium publishers? That word and that analysis came from some work we did probably almost three years ago now, where we started to look at, okay, the, everybody's celebrating that the industry is growing 20, 25% per year digital advertising is a high growth business. And we started to peel back the, the onion, if you will, to look at, okay, where's that growth actually going? And, and the, the math and the, you know, the Google and Facebook's actual financials prove that a majority of the growth, the incremental growth of the industry was just going to two companies. And so what that meant was that over time, you had a, an industry where the companies that that sit in between the user and the news and entertainment that they seek out, whether it be through through sharing and socializing around it on on social media or, or searching for it and discovering it, the, the companies that actually created the content, which is where a lot more of the, the cost and the, the art, if you will, sits, um, whether it be journalism or entertainment, were not receiving equal share or benefit 
as the industry is going up. So we something was askew, and so we started pointing it out several years ago, and I think it's kind of worked its way through the 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 press and the policy discussions. And and you know the, the net at the end of the day is that it's not healthy, and that there are you know reasons we could go into why these two companies are capturing much of the growth, but uh, that needs to be rebalanced. Right. Well, and most of the listeners that are listening to this are marketers. And so as they think about this dynamic, it, it's obviously easy. I use that loosely here. Easy to go buy on, say, Google or Facebook ad dollars. What? And I get the those models are not rewarding where the content is coming from. What would you want marketers to know? Or what would, what would you want them to consider as they make these marketing decisions? Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, what's, let's be frank, why, why they've grown so quickly has been, they've had unique access to data that allows those advertisers to micro target audiences in ways that they could only have dreamed of, you know, 10 years ago. And so that is, that's a unique benefit that these two companies have because they, they see data across your devices and the web in ways that, no one else really can. And then they built scale, easy to buy solutions. So that's the, the benefit they bring to the table. One, it's, it's never good to have that much concentration in the hands of two companies. And if you look at, if you just take Facebook over the last year, year and a half, you know, the, it's had declining engagement with its audience. Every single set of research I've seen has shown this kind of decline in trust in the core product itself there's been a you know litany of negative press and meanwhile the money continues to flow and the price continues to go up at a pretty aggressive rate and most of most of facebook's revenue growth has come from increasing price in the last year year and a half and so that shows the, the lock they have on the marketers dollars and and it's not healthy for for anyone that you know the, the last thing i would i would point out is that i don't think brands are fully appreciating the the risk to their brands of, of living inside these kind of unmanaged platforms, if you will, where Facebook or YouTube is another example where they just, they don't really take any ownership over where the ads are actually running and, and where the money's actually flowing. And that's, that creates a lot more risk to the brand long-term that I think has been appreciated. Got it. Well, you, you mentioned the cost of creating content. What is the current state of the publishing business model today? There's a lot, you know, you've had the success stories, I guess, with like, say, the New York Times and adding subscribers, even even as they're being attacked by a president of the nation. But where do you see the publishing model today? So once you start to kind of peel it back, you see positive trends uh, over the next few years that, that have us, you know, we, we mostly look forward to where things are going, sometimes a few years out. Um, and, and we kind of see the, the tide changing at this point in time in a good way. And so, yeah. I mean, it seems like publishers in general are greatly diversifying their business, you know, and how they generate money. I mean, it used to be all ads, ads and subscriptions, still largely that to the today, but they've added studios, content, development, even in some cases, it seems full-fledged agencies almost have been bolted on to some of them. Is there anything, you know, that you think we should be thinking about on the horizon of, you know, the evolution of the publisher model? I would just, you know, there's, there's more and more discussion around, particularly with marketers, of, of, of going direct to the consumer. 
And, you know, all of those skills, sort of what we saw with sponsored content a few years ago, those are all skills that publishers already have, right? That's, that's the way we describe our members is everyone that has a direct and trust relationship with consumers and advertisers. So they're known brands. They, the consumers come to them because they trust them for the news and entertainment that they create. And yes, they have business models in which they've learned over time how they can take the trust in that brand, whether it be, you know, the Financial Times or Atlantic, pick your brand and, and use that to create new relationships and revenue opportunities. And, and yeah, that's, that's extended into things like events, right? Fortune, fortune conferences for our, for our fortune member, you know, the, the subscriptions and being able to move consumers into a, you know, a, a auto renewing cycle where they're comfortable paying for the content or becoming a, a member, the guardian, one of our members, you know, takes a donation model. These are all core skills of publishers that I think marketers are now thinking more and more about. And it really is, it's not different than it's ever been, which is that marketers like publishers want to have direct and trust relationship with the customer and they they work and collaborate with each other to share that and that's that's always been model. right right well you've got i feel like there's two big business tycoons obviously i can remember the bezos buying the washington post as a personal investment but there's another one as well that i'm, I'm blanking on but I think it was time was purchased by someone as well. Yeah. And Atlanta Atlantic was purchased. That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's almost as if there's also a, you know, a a billionaire club that wants to sustain these as, as a public good as well. You know, and and maybe that's playing into the model, like you described for guardian, you know, with their, uh, with their donation model. Is there anything there? Do you think, I mean, uh, just wondering what you think about that. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the billionaires buying the media companies are, you know, a combination of, I think, investment plus and a respect and understanding of the importance of these institutions. But the the models themselves of depending on philanthropy, if you will, that speaks to the the brand, right? And NPR is one of our members also, and NPR very much has a, a long history of of relying on the public to support it. And, you know, that's that's an affinity and a passion for that brand. And it speaks to the trust in it, and it makes perfect sense. At the end of the day, they're they're still all businesses, though, and they have to find a model that is ultimately connected to the audience's willingness to to find a way to subsidize it with their time and attention, or with their own their own wallets. Um, and you can be owned by a billionaire, but the ultimately the billionaire is going to expect that you have a business that doesn't continue to draw on their own resources. Right, right, right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about Facebook. It seems to be popular in your Twitter feed. (laughs) And it seems to me as a consumer, put my consumer hat on for the moment, that they've really had some critical self-inflicted wounds that would support moving funds from Facebook to premium publishers just for safety's sake, for no other reason. Do you, I'm assuming you agree with that partly because you're supporting your members but um, is there data to support any of that at this point? You know, there's, there's, you get insights behind closed doors of advertisers pushing back or pulling back. In the short term, they can 
you know, that can end up resulting in higher prices elsewhere or even, you know, slower erosion of, of offline media, which we've seen. But at the end of the day, publicly, I haven't, we haven't seen advertisers really take a stand. Uh, that's been, been surprising. If you look down, you know, kind of the institutions that can hold Facebook into check for some very, very concerning practices that they still haven't come clean on. I mean, they've still mostly avoided answering some key questions that have been asked. And the, the institutions that could hold them in check are, are just frankly aren't. And that's that's where we are. And it's it's obviously very concerning. But the, the, the government, no. The consumers are fairly locked in. And Instagram has, I think, helped hold that lock in for Facebook. And the advertisers, you know, you'll, you'll see things like, I mean, I read just this morning, advertisers... Despite the concerns, the conversion is good. So the fact that there's opioids being on Instagram at the same time, it's kind of, they look the other way and it's appalling at times, but I think they're, they're under short term pressure, the marketers, and they're also trying to continue to deliver what they think they need to deliver to their bosses and the metrics that they've kind of bought into. And we're not seeing many companies willing to take a a stand based on on principle or ethics of the fact that they're literally supporting investing in a company that is quite sick at this point. Right. Well, it seems, you know, if you just take privacy as one example with Cambridge Analytica, it seemed to be the trigger moment, I guess, for us having a conversation about privacy. And I've had a number of uh, critics on the show about ad tech and the data collection practices and and just the murkiness, frankly, of the ecosystem around ad tech and its privacy or lack thereof, potentially. How are your members thinking about privacy? I mean, they, they obviously are tracking folks as well, but just curious if you guys have a stance on privacy practices. Yeah, we, we always have and we've always... T- looked very closely at consumer expectations and that's the way we think about it. And, and that often lines up with, there are certain things that a user would expect that you would do out of visiting a website or an app that would be completely in line with your expectations. And then there are things outside of that, that are done as a regular practice by the industry that we think are problematic and, you know, put our members aside because clearly I'm, I'm biased there, but let's just talk about Google as a company if you went and search for a product on Google in their search function, you would fully expect that they're collecting data on that search and targeting ads back to you based on that search. That is, I think, completely in line with most people's expectations that that would happen. Just like if you were on Google Maps and you know looking up an address, they would expect that they would take that data as part of, of helping you map where you need to go. It's the tracking outside of context, if you will, or outside of those ex- expectations where uh, Google would be collecting data across, you know, they, they have tags on like nearly 80% of the, of the top 1 million sites where they're collecting data on what you're browsing and where you're going when you're everywhere else. That's the part that we think is very much outside of consumers' expectations. Just like, you know, Cambridge Analytica, which is certainly uh, the one that really got the the attention finally of the public, when those users filled out the survey that they filled out, they never would have expected that their data would then be sold to this other operative Cambridge Analytica and then used for political advertising purposes, you know, at a later date, Um, just wasn't part of it. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Expectations. And so that's where we really anchor ourselves is around, you know, what, what does the consumer expect? Now, why does this all matter? Um, where's the opportunity for both publishers and for advertisers? Is that if you look at the data around user trust in the digital environment and digital advertising, whether it be banners and buttons or on mobile or, or any format, it's really, really low relative to television and magazines and other, and other formats. Why is that? Because Consumers have never gotten comfortable with the way the digital advertising experience works. And this idea that they're being tracked across the web only makes that worse. It's why users have installed ad blockers at a high rate. And so it's something as an industry we have to solve for. And I think the, the hardest part for the marketers is going to be relinquishing what really has become the holy grail to them of being able to target, collect data and target users wherever they go as cheaply as possible in a really a direct marketing format, have to let go of that in some ways in order to build trust with the consumer that they're actually not, that they actually have control over, over who's collecting data on what they do. Interesting. Well, as you, as we kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about programmatic, I've had great ad fraud researcher on Augustine Fu out of New York and he, you know, because the programmatic landscape and programmatic buying and selling the swamp, to use his words, where it's just wrought with transparency issues, fraud, and you're not really sure at the end of the day what you're buying unless you're getting very granular data that a lot of times the platforms don't want to give you. Now that said, DCN is getting into this game, right? with Trustex. Can you tell us a little bit about what Trustex is, why you're getting into this game and what it what it means for advertisers? Sure. Yeah. So Trustex was is a subsidiary of DCN. And you know, we as as DCN as a trade group have done and will continue to do what, what we normally would do, which is for each of these problems and, and they're really symptoms of a larger issue, but bot fraud or measurement or disinformation and bad content experiences for all these issues we we you know gather around in a room with the other stakeholders and we try to improve as an industry collectively that being said we also thought that the problems were significant enough that it would make sense to also launch a subsidiary which we did which we called TrustX which is an actual marketplace where we could solve these problems through a, a live product and actually do business 
in the way that we thought the industry and really the marketers really want to do business to lead by example. And so we launched it a couple of years ago and they've now got all the pipes working and our publishers fully on board and they're delivering significant advertising on a monthly basis now, uh, but they're doing it in a way that's hundred percent guaranteed human viewable only on premium publishers. So solves all your brand safety issues. They're not doing it to make any money at all. And they're being a hundred, it's under a nonprofit and they're being a hundred percent transparent in terms of where all the money's going. And so if you, if you look at, you know, and I know that Dr. Fu's work on the, on the fraud topic, most of the, these problems, the, the solution is actually just knowing where your ads are running and where your money's going. That solves like 99% of the issues. And every time you try to do that in a cheaper way and you end up causing these problems to surface. And so that's exactly what TrustX is focused on is 100% transparency. You know where your ads run and you know where your money's going. Boom. Interesting. Yeah. How do you think we got here? Like to a place where we have systems out there as a, you know, as a marketer that I'm supposed to be able to use, but I have no idea if it's going to work or not. You know, have you pondered this, you know, how we got here or is there a core fundamental problem with us as people? I don't know. (laughs) Well, you know, we, we, the, what digital brings to the table, which is super powerful is the ability to automate things that we've done in the past, which had a lot of cost to them from a human perspective and weren't as efficient. And so things like programmatic and the ability to use technology to make things more efficient are, are wonderful and they're going to continue to grow and they are absolutely the future. And so the, the challenge is that as they're built, if you don't have the right principles in place to, again, back to that word trust, to, to know that two parties are going to get the value that they expect from the other, from the other end on a you know, repetitive basis, then things break down. And the ad supply chain is a great example of that. And when you have a black box and you've got all these intermediaries and their mission is to maximize their own profits, right? You've got advertisers on one end and you got consumers and publishers on the other end. And you have all these companies in between that are trying to maximize their own profit that are VC backed. They inevitably are going to take welfare or take revenue away from the, the principals, the advertiser and the consumer publisher. And so that's what's been happening. They've, more and more have been squeezing the revenue into the middle to these intermediaries, Google and Facebook being the two biggest beneficiaries. That's bad for advertisers, bad for publishers. And when either of those parties aren't making enough money to justify their investment, things start to break down in a vicious cycle. And I think that's what we're, we're kind of seeing. And so the, the work, particularly on the marketer side, to bring more transparency to the supply chain is incredibly important because what that will do is force the value back out to the principles on each end and that, you know, the publisher can then reinvest into better experiences for the marketer and the marketer can reinvest in, you know, what's meaningful to their brand rather than doing stuff as cheaply as possible. Do you feel like that shift of pushing the value back out to the ends versus the murky middle, is that going to come through, you know, innovations or, or new products like Trustex? Is it going to come through 
regulatory ish, you know, regulations, I guess. What are your thoughts on what's going to be the tipping point or consumers just going to wake up one day and, and realize that they don't like what they're seeing? I think, yeah, that's already happened, right? And so you've got more and more young people that have just said, forget it, I'm out. And, you know, they've installed ad blockers and, and, or they're, you know, using Netflix or, or, you know, going to product experiences where they don't have to deal with advertising. You'd like to believe that the industry's efforts would solve some of these issues through innovation. It's difficult because there's a lot of money for the incumbents that are in the room that are determining the rules. And I think we are at a, I think we're at a point where regulate, regulatory threats are are more and more likely, which have their own concerns that come with that because you don't want to slow this whole innovation cycle down. But on the data side, at the end of the day, data is an incredibly important piece of that value exchange. And if you can get a hold of the data without actually having to pay for the content itself, then that's kind of the the ultimate win for, for the intermediaries. And you know, the regulation in, in Europe with GDPR and then in California here and then the federal discussion are those are happening and or they're done already. And and that will force some transparency through that supply chain. You know, they're they're asking questions in Europe, like, is the entire programmatic system, is it actually a GDPR violation as it stands? And do we need to to reform it? And so those are those are that's regulatory threats driving driving an evolution pretty quickly. Fascinating. It's going to be something to watch for sure in the next year or two. One of the things I love to do on the show is just kind of get to know the person behind the topics. And uh, I'd love to ask you, I love this question, which is, you know, is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Yeah, that's a big question. So, you know, I, I do think I did spend 20 years before taking this job where I was working for brand publisher brands that a bunch were within the old times mirror corporation that had magazine brands and as part of the big newspaper company. And then in one of the main sporting news and then spent seven years, CBS sports. And so I very much developed a love for, for the history of these brands and finding a way to help them evolve into the digital future. And, and I was gifted with opportunities that I just, you know, that was a, coder when the first web browsers came out in in the early 90s that I was gifted with opportunities that I never really ever should have been given (laughs) because I was still a naive, you know, 20, 20 something year old, 22 year old. But, um, but people were patient with me and, and had an opportunity to, to learn inside of big organizations, how to, to build properties and, um, and help these companies evolve what I knew. And, and so that all I think has led to you know, a, a chance where now I'm, I like to believe I'm trying to do that now for the, you know, the broader ecosystem and for all these publishers and maybe in certain ways, translating the understanding of the tech and the business of, of creating digital media to people like particularly in, in Washington or in Brussels, where there's always been a pretty significant divide. So we can kind of help educate the various institutions that we can push this forward. Love it. Well, is there any advice you give to your younger self if you're starting all over again? <laughs> you really don't know that much about the world. <laughs> With, yeah. You know, I think one of the challenges, you know, it's, and I think, you know, it can also be a benefit with how fast things are, are, are shifting, particularly in tech, is that you, you get these opportunities where 
you, you, you feel like you're ahead of the rest of, you know, the rest of the industry because you, you come in early on something. And, you know, in the early nineties, that was building websites, you know, and, and then in the two thousands, it was, it was leveraging social media or community properties, apps, you know, so each of these cycles we go through, there are a group of people that are typically younger who are well ahead of the rest of the industry. And they get opportunities that they never would have ever gotten just based on, you know, experience in, inside of these large organizations. And I think that's it's a huge opportunity. And we all can learn from these young people a lot. But at the same time, you know, there's so much for these young people and myself when I was in my 20s to learn from the people that were around me. And, you know, I'm, I'm even more humbled now that they were patient with me in my 20s. So <laughs> That's great. Well, what fuels you? What keeps you going? You know, I, I do, particularly on the, the news side, the journalism side, as much as I took this role four years ago to figure out the the competitive issues and kind of some core, you know, I, I described them as trust issues and the way the marketplace worked that I thought needed to be figured out to pay for pay for the future of, of news and entertainment. The pressure and the discussion around the journalism and the press and protecting it as an institution has has fueled me even more so in the last couple of years. I, I have as much respect as I've ever had for for the brands that seek to, you know, at the end of the day, to yes, they want to make money, but they're also out there to inform the public and do it in as objective way as possible. And they're important to to our society. And so, you know, the discussion around Facebook and data and privacy and and disinformation is like I, I'm passionate about it because it intersects both with my own my own beliefs for what's important to the public but also it does happen to be what I'm paid to do for this trade association which is makes things fun to wake up each morning got it well are there brands companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of you know I, I would highlight one story right now that I think um, I think everybody should be aware of which is there's a a news group in the Philippines called Rappler. I don't know if you've heard of them, that Maria Ressa is the CEO and founder of. She's a longtime journalist and she's been very, uh, a very good voice. She has a great podcast that she did with Kara Swisher in the fall. And there's a profile of her in the New York Times. And she was named Time Person of the Year, actually, for Time Magazine a few months ago, you know, she is very much and their, their newsroom is very much at the intersection of what can happen when Facebook has too much power and social media goes awry. And 97% of the Philippines uses Facebook as their only, as their internet, basically. And then intersecting that with authoritarian power and intimidation. And she's very much at that intersection and they've, you know, she's been indicted now on charges and was even arrested last week thrown in jail for overnight. And this is all because of, of, you know, kind of trumped up disinformation. And so I'm paying a lot of attention to that. And I think it's a cause that people need to be aware of because it's, it is really at the heart of, of why these issues are important. Yeah. It sounds like it's right at the heart of democracy or free communication. Absolutely. So last question for you, and I, I hope this is a fair one. I don't think of you as a marketer necessarily, but I would love your thoughts on what you think the future of marketing holds. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think about these things a lot. I, you know, the the part that I worry about, I think, is both the biggest opportunity still is that the piece of marketing in terms of 
brand marketing and really building desire and demand for your product. Uh, you know, finding new customers and that's the discovery piece. Like it's not that different than what publishers try to do on, on search or social media is, you know, they want to be discovered. They want people to think differently about them. That piece hasn't really been solved in, in a significant way in digital. And I think combination of the excitement and love for targeting and data and audience micro targeting, we use the term now and, and also a difficult financial run after 2008. I think there's been this swing towards and this understanding of the science of targeting users. We, we still question how accurate it is at times, but that's been where the whole focus has been. And kind of the, the art of getting your, your brand or your message introduced or thought of differently in front of the public, which you know, has been done brilliantly for years in magazines and on television needs to be figured out online. And I think that's the the untapped opportunity that really it really speaks to the heart of of what our members do and what advertisers need to figure out. Otherwise, frankly, they're gonna end up being manufacturers or white labeling products for Amazon in a few years if they don't figure that out because ultimately they need their brands to have value. Oh, that's fascinating. It sparked an idea in my head that there's probably if we if we as marketers could study, you know, how publishers grow their their base, right? Their discovery base. There's probably some learnings in in that for product manufacturers or you know service marketers, whatever it is. That's Absolutely. a that's a fascinating fascinating analogy. I hadn't thought about it before. So thank you. <laughs> but uh, but thank you also for coming on the show. It's been uh, fascinating to kind of hear the publisher side of the story. Oh, thank you for having me and the interest. Have a good rest of your day. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with writing and editing by Kevin Greeley, social media support by Megan Woods, art and graphic design by Sarah Dell. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.